When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to part four of four on reconsidering Russia. Today, we are going to talk about U.S.-Russia relations. On the last episode, we talked a little bit more about Russian relations with all of its more immediate neighbors, and now we're going to talk about Russia-U.S. Yeah, this is the one you've all been waiting for, the bromance of the bad hombres. What we're going to actually do is talk a little bit about the relationship between the United States and Russia post-Cold War, focusing on political leaders, so starting with Bush and Gorbachev and ending with Trump and Putin. Um, and we've got a really heavy hitter with us this time to take us through that recent history and do a little bit of predicting with us. His name is Stephen Sestanovich. Um, he's the he's a senior fellow for Russian and Eurasian Studies on the Council of Foreign Relations. He's written a book. He's been a professor. And uh, he's actually worked with the Reagan administration on Russia. So the guy has been through the weeds. He knows what he's talking about. We're really excited to have him. Before we get into it, remember a little bit of housekeeping. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Twitter at ReconsiderPod. That's at ReconsiderPod for both. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we also have a Patreon account, so you can log on to patreon.com slash reconsider, and you can give us your money. We always ask for a buck a show, just like Dan Carlin. And if you want to give even more, we've got some great perks for the people that have uh, been donating a little bit more, uh, including at our highest level, the Reconsider Cabinet uh, where once a month you get to hop on a Google Hangout with us, ask us some questions about the show, about the world, give us some advice and feedback, tell us what you want uh, us to talk about. It's uh, The last one was a ton of fun. I'd love to have more of you. So without further ado, let's get to it. This is our interview with Stephen Sestanovich. So today's guest is Stephen Sostanovich, uh, the George F. Keenan Senior Fellow for Russian and Eurasian Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the Catherine and Shelby Colum Davis Professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. He has been a senior senatorial legislative assistant, policy planner at the Department of State during the Reagan administration, and senior director for policy development at the U.S. National Security Council. He has served as ambassador-at-large and special advisor to the Secretary of State for the new independent states of the former Soviet Union under Madeleine Albright. 
He's also the author of Maximalist, America in the World from Truman to Obama. You'll find his name all over contemporary journalism. Uh, and he got his bachelor's from Cornell and his PhD in government from Harvard. You might want to rewind and listen to all of that again. It's quite a CV. Stephen, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So today we're going to be talking about Russia's contemporary relation with the U.S. Our last show covered more regional geopolitics with, with Russia, and this will be our fourth and final episode. So we're going to talk about what's happened, especially after the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia, to give a little context to the current relationship that is developing with Trump. So let's, let's start at the end of the Cold War. The Soviet Union was dismantled under Gorbachev and the U.S. was, you know, feeling pretty good. We were the preponderant superpower. We had won this decades-long conflict, and Francis Fukuyama said that this is the end of history, right? Uh, now, Stephen, you said in one piece that many considered the 90s to be a vacation from geopolitics, looking at it retrospectively. So what did you mean by that, and, and what do you think about that now? Let me answer that in a second. But let's go back to the end of history because people um, often misunderstand what that means. And I think it's worth pausing for just a second to clarify. Um, yes, we won the kind of battle of ideas that was underlying the Cold War. Uh, and liberal ideas, democratic ideas, who were thought to be uh, in the ascendant, uh, victorious all around the world. But embodying those ideas in working institutions was uh, another matter. And it turned out that uh, it was actually a rather difficult matter in many post-communist societies. And that gets to the broader question that you asked, which is, uh, was it a vacation from geopolitics? Well, only if... Uh, viable institutions could be created that would make it possible for countries to work, uh, for political, social, economic systems to be created that satisfied their people, that allowed uh, relations with neighbors to be peaceful and cooperative. And the 90s were not really all about peace and cooperation. Actually, there was a lot of concern that the Cold War was going to be followed by an era of ethnic conflict, of new geopolitical rivalry. Many academic experts and real-life politicians wondered whether the revival of Germany as a unified power and as the seemingly the dominant economic of power on the European continent would create all kinds of new stabilities. Empires often break up, uh, and uh, the result uh, is is chaos. And people didn't know whether that was going to be true of the breakup of the Soviet Union. As the Soviet Union started to break up, um, we know Gorbachev during this era was fighting the total dismantling of the Union, uh, but he failed. And so at this point, we have Bush 41 in charge, trying to manage the breakup of the Union in a way that was going to lead to a peaceful outcome rather than 
total chaos. Um, and so how did Bush see this period? And did he try to help Gorbachev? Was he trying to help Yeltsin dismantle it? Um, how did he try to work with Russia in order to manage this transition? Well, Bush was seen as a great Gorbachev booster. Uh, he went to uh, Moscow uh, to uh, show his support. Uh, he went to Kiev and criticized the Ukrainians for suicidal nationalism. He was actually an advocate of the view that holding the Soviet Union together was necessary for stability. People in the Bush entourage didn't like Yeltsin at all. They thought he was a, a dissolute, self-interested political troublemaker. Uh, and so to the extent that the U.S. could put its finger on the scales, they were voting for Gorbachev. But in reality, the American vote didn't count for very much because the internal dynamics of Soviet politics turned out to be a lot more important. And uh, when, when Gorbachev's own conservative party backers turned against him, the result was a national division, and Yeltsin carried the day. The people were with Yeltsin and wanted... Uh, to put the communist order behind him. Given what was going on, what was the United States' biggest concern as it lost, as Gorbachev lost his grip on the Union and it fell apart? What did Bush do with uh, Gorbachev and then Yeltsin to try to um, to try to maintain peace in Europe? Well, there were a number of concerns, as you can imagine, when a big system like this fails. Uh, it uh, it creates a lot of collateral damage. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. Uh, so one part of the U.S. government was especially worried about uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, where would the uh, weapons that had been outside of the territory of Russia, in Ukraine and Kazakhstan, uh, where would they end up? Who would control them? Another part of the U.S. government was worried about economic uh, viability for the uh, new countries of the Soviet Union. Um, the State Department was particularly worried about creating some recognition and standing for the new countries of the Soviet Union. And so Secretary Baker made a pilgrimage, uh, a, a tour of all of the new capitals, to announce the diplomatic recognition and the formation of U.S. embassies. Um, the whole of the U.S. government was particularly concerned about uh, political stability. The question was, could you, in the wake of the Soviet collapse, actually uh, create a smooth transition to new working societies and political systems? And that had people on edge. They didn't know... Uh, what the right instruments would be, what the right political and other diplomatic strategies would be to actually uh, create working partners for the uh, for U.S. and European governments. So, following this, Russia obviously did find itself in a weak point. It's really when its economy began to suffer and started to dole out different assets to what people are now calling the oligarchs. 
And a lot of people are saying that it was in this time that the West took advantage of Russia's weakness to expand NATO, include Hungary and Poland and the Czech Republic. Now, you've stated before that you believe that enlargement was a major American policy achievement. And I bring that up because there's a lot of people saying, you know, today, well, look, you know, look at what the U.S. does. Obviously, Russia is feeling it this way. But you say this and then also say that it's nevertheless been, quote, marred by mistakes and costs that were higher than expected. So what did you mean by this? Go back for a second. Because uh, he asked what kind of help was given. In the first instance, uh, American and Western governments thought that you needed to have economic assistance. And some of this was, from the Russian point of view, of others, other countries in the former Soviet Union, somewhat humiliating. This was a big psychological jolt for them. The idea that they were receiving food aid from the United States, the famous bush legs, you know, frozen chicken, to keep body and soul together in the Russian Federation during a hard winter. This was a kind of psychological jolt to people that they could hardly imagine. And I remember a Russian friend of mine saying to me uh, at the time, don't feed us, uh, because that was a relationship of such humiliating dependency uh, that uh, she thought Russians would not cope with it well. Now, more broadly about the issue of uh, NATO enlargement, here's the problem. The United States settled on, for reasons that I'll mention in a second, a very hard strategy. And that strategy was to try to integrate uh, the countries of Eastern Europe uh, and the former Soviet Union as much as possible into existing international institutions. Um, it didn't think that it could do that all at once with all of them. It thought they had to meet certain criteria, readiness, eligibility uh, to be part of those institutions. But it wanted to make sure that the ones that were left out it would might be only ready for membership late down the road uh, would not be estranged. So it wanted to have a policy of maximum integration, but also of good relations with everybody who wasn't integrated. And of course, the most dramatic version of this was taking some of the countries of the former Soviet bloc into NATO and not uh, Russia, which, by the way, wasn't sure it wanted to be in NATO. The American approach was very ambitious. It thought it had to do this because it believed that stability depended on not just having a gray zone in which no countries knew where their security would come from, in which the countries of the uh, of Eastern Europe felt they were kind of left out of international order. Um, instead, the thought was they need to feel as though they're citizens in good standing of the modern democratic world. And at the same time, American policymakers thought they should reach out as much as possible to Russia to deepen cooperation with Russia to show signs of respect for it as a nation, as a culture, 
show signs toward respect for its leaders, bring it into whatever institutions it would be integrated into, um, and in that way create an expectation of cooperation and new feeling. You can say this was a doomed enterprise, and some people say that today. I think it was a hard enterprise. It was an ambitious one, and it needed maybe a lot of luck uh, to work, but it certainly didn't fail because there was no effort or no commitment to it. American policymakers, Clinton administration, Bush administration, and, and both Bush administrations, uh, saw Russia as a country that needed to be um, shown respect, that needed to feel it was part of the West, uh, and that the way to do this was by active American leadership. Now, there was a downside to this, of course. It made the United States look as though it was the boss of everybody. It made it easy for Russians to say, you know, they're treating us as though we're the losers. But the underlying thought was, let's act as though the Russians were not the losers. Let's act as though Yeltsin is our buddy as though Putin is our buddy, uh, as though Russia and the United States can be friends and partners. And given all this outreach, what was the relationship like uh, in the Clinton-Yeltsin years, and especially early in the Bush-Putin years? Did they seem to have a cordial working relationship where they were, you know, really seeing each other as partners to you know solve the issues that existed both between them and in Europe as a whole um, were there strains and frustrations between the administrations um, yeah. even beyond yeah. the frustration that Russians felt on the ground sure look we tend to remember Yeltsin as our pal and we think of Putin as a creep and so we tend to think oh the relationship with, uh, with Putin has always been bad, and, and with Yeltsin it must have been good. Uh, it's true that um, Clinton and Yeltsin had basically amicable relationship. There was a reason it was called the Bill and Boris show. Uh, but it had its awkwardnesses and difficulties. Yeltsin had to retain his independence for his political standing at home. He had to show he could talk back to the United States when, it, uh, when Russia disagreed with his policy. And he did that. Russia Russians were conflicted about this entire enterprise, and they didn't want to make it seem as though they were just the uh, junior partner. So Yeltsin frequently uh, blasted the United States for doing things that he disagreed with. Similarly, Putin, the relationship between him and Bush was actually often as cordial, uh, and in some ways easier than between uh, Bush and uh, then between Clinton and Yeltsin, uh, partly because Putin is a less volatile personality. He and Bush uh, were able to find a, a, a working accommodation in the early years of the uh, of the Bush forty three administration. You know, Condi Rice said this may be the best period of Russian relations, Russian American relations ever, uh, and. She didn't mean there were no problems, but just that the strategy that I've described, which is using American power to integrate 
as many states as possible while having the best possible relations with the big state that wasn't fully integrated. She thought, and a lot of people would have told you at the time, that relationship was working. So this relationship seemed to be working in the 90s. Did the U.S. intervention in the Balkans in 1999 change the trajectory of that relation? Yeah, I was at the State Department at the time, and I remember giving a little talk to uh, worried think tankers uh, here in, in Washington uh, who thought, oh my God, this is changing the trajectory of the U.S.-Russia relationship, just as you've asked. Huh. And my message to them at the time was, look, when the United States uses force uh, in a way that Russia doesn't agree with, doesn't have this approval of the UN Security Council where the Russians had their veto, one of their big geopolitical tools left to them after the collapse of the Soviet Union. When all that happens, the Russians are bound to criticize. They're bound to get off the bus of Russian-American cooperation. And for as long as the American uh, use of force continues, they will stay off the bus. And then when it's over, they'll get back on the bus. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in the Kosovo War. Uh, the Russians actually participated in the settlement uh, of it and with uh, representatives of the EU and uh, the State Department. They, Yeltsin came to uh, a G7 meeting in Germany to, for laying on of hands to say, we now embrace the solution of the Kosovo problem um, as united members of the international community and as members of the Security Council. So it didn't actually have this kind of devastating effect on the Russian-American relationship. In fact, in some ways, it seemed to strengthen it. Both Russia and the United States, for example, participated as chief peacekeepers in Kosovo. And the following year, um, uh, Clinton came to Moscow for a summit meeting with Putin, at which he visited Yeltsin, and there was a show of good cheer and uh, of good feeling. And then, as I said, in the uh, in the early uh, Bush administration, there was a, a kind of new high reached for Russian-American relations. So the uh, the problem of Russian disagreements with American military operations remained. And you saw it again with, in the Iraq War. But even that didn't end uh, the idea of Russian-American partnership. It won the, uh, when the war was over, the Russians were prepared to get back on the bus again. So at some point, the common narrative goes that during the, Bush, the second Bush administration, the relationship between the United States and Russia started to break down, in part highlighted by the fact that there was the big reset button pressed at the beginning of the Obama administration with Secretary Clinton. So what was the main driver? Well, was there a breakdown in the relationship? Was it driven in part by the Orange Revolution, um, trying to bring Georgia into NATO or something else? Or was it not as bad as people thought? I think it was, it was bad, but it was maybe not irreparable. Uh, the Orange Revolution was a big, big shock to the Russians. Because what it said to them was, 
uh, you can have a kind of popular uprising to throw out uh, pro-Soviet, pro-Soviet, please forgive that expression, pro-Russian political, <laughs> pro-Russian political leaders who've lost touch with the people. That's what happened in the 2004 election. Remember, it was um, a massive show of popular disapproval for essentially vote rigging that would have given the presidency to Viktor Yanukovych, um, who will return to our story later. Viktor Yanukovych was the candidate of the pro-Russian uh, political forces in uh, in Ukraine, and uh, he was denied the presidency uh, because such big crowds formed in Kiev demanding uh, a new round of balloting. Uh, and that was, uh, for the Russians, a shock. The idea that that's how politics would be decided in the streets through popular protests with voting that couldn't be manipulated by the state. This was a, an immense blow to them. And it created a kind of uh, you know, ideology of anti-Western uh, interference because they thought, aha, this is bad what's happened in Ukraine. A, a, a new government hostile to Russia has been installed. But it wasn't the first time. They thought that the same thing had happened in Georgia the year before where crowds had protested rigged elections and then you'd had a more pro-Western uh, leadership uh, come in. So Putin began to develop this thought that the West was uh, fixed on regime change. And this term, which had been applied, of course, to Saddam Hussein, came to be his unifying indictment of American policy, that the United States was going around trying to bring down governments that it didn't approve of. Now, in reality, the U.S. government had next to nothing to do with the Orange Revolution uh, or with the Rose Revolution in Georgia before it. But Putin became increasingly concerned that this was a uh, the thrust of, of Western policy designed ultimately to bring him down. So, was the development of this Russian perception of the West as intent on regime change and locking it in. Is this what led Russia to invade Georgia, fear of either NATO expansion or Western influence in that, that region? And how did that impact how the West saw Russia after this event? Yeah, the invasion of Georgia uh, by Russian troops is one of those subjects like NATO enlargement uh, in general, like the Orange Revolution, like many other episodes of Russian-American disagreement in this period, it's going to have scholars and practitioners arguing for years and years. Um, there were many other Russian grievances in Georgia, besides native enlargement. Um, after all, you'd had Russian troops in these two separatist parts of Georgia, uh, for 15 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
that had mostly been a peaceful collapse, but in some cases where there was uh, division and separatism in the new states in the former Soviet Union, the Russians actually um, sent in forces to try to stabilize things and to create a uh, to create enclaves of opposition to governments that they didn't have complete confidence in. And that was true in Georgia. There were Russian troops in South Ossetia and in Abkhazia, uh, and those had been a, a source of disagreement between the government, the Georgian government in Tbilisi, uh, and the, the Russian government in Moscow for years. And the Georgians have been trying to get those so-called peacekeepers out, uh, and the Russians had been determined to keep them in. So there was a lot of jockeying back and forth. You could have had this sort of uh, this sort of explosion of violence that was more than only lasted four days, five days. Um, but I, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, that Putin felt especially aggrieved uh, that months earlier uh, at the at a NATO summit in Bucharest, uh, the West had declared that eventually. Uh, Georgia would be part, Georgia and Ukraine would be part of NATO. This was a weird mishandled episode because actually the real uh, message of that summit to the Russians was uh, we're not going to bring them into NATO. <laughs> there had been too much division within the alliance and they couldn't agree on adding these members. So they just kicked the can down the road and said, well, someday they'll be part of but the truth is, NATO governments were not at all prepared uh, to have Georgia be part of, uh, of the alliance. And, uh, and if the Russians had understood things better, I think they probably did understand this, uh, they would have known that the Germans, the French, others would never allow it to happen. But uh, all the same, uh, it was a kind of goad to Putin. It gave him a reason to try to bring down uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, who was the president of Georgia, somebody who did not get along with Putin at all. Uh, and so you had this explosion. And people in the West were stunned because it didn't, it didn't seem just like another bit of Russian interference uh, in a neighboring country. It seemed like aggression. People started talking about uh, Putin as the new Hitler, uh, comparing this to the dismemberment of Austria and of Czechoslovakia in the late 30s. Uh, there was a kind of uh, hysteria is not too strong a word. And there was the same sort of agitation in Russia. Uh, Putin himself probably made a big mistake right afterwards. He, he decided to recognize these two uh, breakaway parts of Georgia as independent countries, something that Russian officials and diplomats told me in Moscow right afterwards, you know, they knew he was going too far, that it was a brainless, emotional thing to do. Uh, but that it was, a, it was a kind of symptom of where the relationship was heading. It, it was becoming a kind of grudge match uh, between Russia and, and the West, and where it was a little more difficult to control the dynamics than either side. Uh, fully appreciated or really should. So the dialogue becomes a little bit more challenging between the two countries. Obama takes office and 
seeks this reset button. Yeah. What was Obama attempting to achieve with a reset with Medjeved? It looked like it was working for a while. And ha- have things been going in the right direction? And if not, what has changed since then? Well, the reset was uh, a uh, a decision to try to put aside the Georgian disagreement, the emotions, uh, the, the anger that had been sparked on both sides by that flare-up in the summer of 2008, uh, and to try to calm the relationship down, to return it in a way to what I described earlier as um, the uh, the strategy that the United States had followed really since the end of the Cold War, and that is to have the best possible cooperative relationship with Russia that you could sustain uh, without compromising fundamental uh, Western interests. And so they be- the Obama administration very carefully uh addressed a number of specific issues on which it thought it was possible to make progress. Uh, it wanted uh, overflight rights for uh, the support of American forces in Afghanistan, for example. Um, wanted to get a new uh, arms control, strategic arms control treaty. Uh, both of those things turned out to be pretty easy to do. Uh, and a new atmosphere was created for uh, Russian-American relations, in which it was possible to, for example, consult closely on the problem of Iran's nuclear program, um, in which it was possible to uh, make progress in getting Russia at long last into the World Trade Organization. It seemed as though a transactional approach was going to be possible uh, as a way of pulling the the relationship back from the emotional impasse, the strategic, charged strategic impasse that the Russian-Georgian War had uh, had brought it to. Uh, It looked as though uh, the strategy that I was... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Describing earlier was going to work again. Get a new, uh, a, a new lease on life. Ah, uh, but then things seem to have gone to hell in the past few years. Absolutely, didn't just. Yeah, they genuinely get went to hell. Yeah. So. You know, a lot of events happened. There was the Maidan Revolution. Um, and what I don't know is how much the U.S. might have actually been 
directly or indirectly involved in that, followed, of course, by the invasion of Crimea, um, the invasion of eastern Ukraine, and Russian involvement in Syria to prop up the Assad regime, all of which were direct military confrontations that headbutted with American policy interests and even at times put us at risk of shooting each other by mistake. So what the heck happened? <laughs> Look, I, the, the, what happened in Ukraine is the pivotal part of this story. Without it, you get Russian-American disagreements, scratchiness, uh, periods of estrangement, but not any fundamental rupture. With Ukraine, you get a complete turning there were disagreements before Ukraine. Remember, there was the Magnitsky bill. There was concern about, um, you know, repression in Russia. Uh, there were the rigged elections of 2011, which produced demonstrations uh, in Russia, a sign that Putin's government was not uh, as legitimate as it pretended to be. It had to it depended on electoral manipulation. But those were manageable differences, I would argue. Uh, ones that would challenge policymakers, but wouldn't bring down the whole edifice of the regime. Uh, Ukraine was different. Uh, and, uh, you know, even, even the disagreement that the U.S. and Russia had over Snowden, which was the summer before the events in Ukraine, uh, was a a bit of unpleasantness, but uh, it wasn't a, uh, a fundamental threat to uh, the relationship of the sort that Ukraine became. Now, why did why did the Ukraine uh, events uh, be, loom so large? Not because the United States had attached a whole lot of importance to Ukraine. Actually, Ukraine was a real backwater of uh, U.S. policy in years in the whole entire Obama administration leading up to um, to 2014. Um, rather little attention had been paid to it. And uh, when American officials started paying more attention to the uh, uh, Maidan demonstrations, uh, it was as a kind of uh, late-in-the-game uh, realization that something big was going on here. The issue had been, would Ukraine tilt toward the EU in trade and economic terms or toward Russia? Uh, and that, in Ukraine, morphed into a fundamental challenge uh, to, the, uh, to the regime. The Maidan demonstrations started out as a protest of Yanukovych's decision uh, to orient toward uh, Russia, uh, economically, uh, rather than toward the EU. But they morphed into something more fundamental, a challenge to uh, Yanukovych's rule. And the way in which that happened was through the very clumsy, totally counterproductive use of force against demonstrators. The Maidan demonstrations stopped being about trade, which it's generally a problem you can solve by having a lot of experts consult. And they became instead uh, about uh, 
abuse of power, impunity by illegitimate officials. Ultimately, uh, Yanukovych had to flee the country because every single member of the Ukrainian parliament voted to remove him. Putin doesn't like to recall those facts. He likes to think of it as an American coup. But in reality, what happened was it was like the Orange Revolution on steroids. You had a, a popular consensus that the people in charge were corrupt, illegitimate, and had to go. And at that point, uh, there was no way around uh, the, the situation except to have a, a change of leadership. Uh, it had been a revolution. You had had groups in the streets that brought down the government. Uh, but it was for reasons that uh, really had more to do with the actions of that government than with any outside interference. Uh, Putin it, will never believe this, but you know, actually American officials weren't too interested in Ukraine. They became very interested when it became uh, an issue of uh, uh, Russia's retaliation, which was the conquest of the support of separatist uh, insurgent forces in uh, eastern Ukraine, and what looked like possibly an effort to dismember the entire Ukrainian state. Here again, as in 2008, you had people saying, uh, you know, Putin is the new Hitler. This was overdone. My view is it's never good to compare anybody to Hitler, but there was a much more dramatic uh, uh, urgency to this problem because it did look as though uh, Russia was in the business of conquering the territory of its neighbors. So we've we've seen obviously a more active Russia in the last several years. I mean the the acquisition of Crimea and as you said, lots of people said, "Oh well, it's just like Hitler's the first time borders have moved since yeah. World War II." Yeah. Despite whatever historical differences, you know, might obviously also be there, but then something that I kind of think really threw a lot of um, a lot of folks in the West was when Russia got involved in Syria. What what what, what is Russia doing there, and is how is this related to what's going on in the Ukraine, and what how are we trying to solve the Russian intervention there now? Yeah, look if you sat Putin down and you said, is there some common theme, unifying thread to uh, Ukraine and Syria, he would say, yes, it's Western support for regime change. The idea that Western governments can pick winners and losers in other countries and bring down people that they don't like. And here, too, uh, the, the the truth of what happened in Syria was not that uh, Western governments decided they've had it with President Assad and decided to bring him down. It's that you had a, a popular uprising, not so different from what you had in Ukraine. The Colored Revolution uh, weren't so different from the Arab Spring across the Arab world with no prompting from uh, Western governments 
people got mad at their leaderships, and uh, that ultimately became the Syrian civil war. For Putin, uh, looking at this situation, uh, where there were you know there were definite uh, efforts after incredible atrocities by the Assad regime, uh, efforts by Western governments to promote a, a peaceful resolution and then uh, you know, to promote armed groups that would be able to defend themselves against the regime. Uh, for Putin, this was a case of defending your guy. I mean, Putin is a, you know, he has a, a kind of simple approach to politics. You know, if you're on my side, I will uh, fight for you. And if you're not on my side, you know, to hell with you. His idea about Assad was he and his family had been friends of the Soviet Union and then of Russia. And uh, that was a cooperative relationship that he was prepared to invest in heavily to support. Uh, there's a little base uh, there, not much of a base. Uh, on the Syrian coast that Russian, the Russian Navy uses. But the core of it was supporting a, uh, a client state uh, against uh, outside pressure and even against internal pressure. You could say especially against internal pressure. The dramatic step that Putin took, of course, was bringing Russian military forces into the fight, which he did quite late in the game when it looked as though Assad might be about to go down. I don't think Putin would have done that if he hadn't been quite sure that the United States uh, was not going to intervene uh, against him. So in that respect, there's a kind of connection between the famous 2013 red line incident, which the, you know, the Obama administration made clear, we are not getting involved in this story, even though you have a major violation of the international uh, convention on use of chemical weapons. Uh, seeing that the United States was not going to act, Putin was able to uh, take action confidently. Uh, he could uh, he could do something that you know the Soviet Union had never done, uh, which is a massive military operation. Uh, in a country in the Middle East uh, in order to uh, support a client, get the, resolve a major uh, you know, civil war. And uh, for him, this has been an enormous demonstration of the revival of Russian power. Uh, something that no Soviet leader could do. Uh, something that was vastly beyond the capabilities of Yeltsin. Putin showed uh, could be done under his revived Russia. It helped that he had been able to increase uh, Russian military spending by 100% in the 10 years prior to that. Uh, it helped that he knew that Western governments really didn't want to get it. But all the same, it was a, a, a sign, uh, a message to the Russian body politic, you know, we're back. We're back on the international stage in a way that you never imagined would be possible um, 20 years earlier. So at this point, 
Russia and U.S. relations have hit a serious nadir. Um, I mean, I remember people talking about World War III coming up, and that rhetoric yeah. has uh, only grown sort of more hysterical as the new sheriff in the United States has come to town, and boy, does he know how to make a deal. We, of course, are talking about Trump. And what's interesting is that among all the concern among the American public about the United States and Russia, it varies actually between a hot conflict and uh, sort of on one end and to the other end, Trump being a Manchurian candidate yeah. um, and, a, and Putin's puppet. Um, so before we get into dissecting what their relationship is actually like, um, Russia was obviously happier with Trump getting elected than Clinton. Um, and what do they expect out of a relationship with Trump or what can they what are they hoping for? Um, and are Trump and Putin, you know, actually friends and, and will they get along? OK, a lot of questions there. Uh, let's just go back to you know, as a way into this problem to the uh, the World War Three specter that you mentioned, uh, because it is true that over the past couple of years, much more in Russia. Uh, than here, by the way, uh, there's a, been a lot of apocalyptic talk uh, about this coming confrontation, uh, not just of a new Cold War, but of a new hot war. And I think it's important to understand where that came from. It didn't come just from Syria, although that made it uh, bad, and it didn't come just from uh, Ukraine, but from the sustained sense that the Russia and the United States and behind it the NATO alliance were on this kind of collision course uh, that uh, wasn't disciplined by any agreement on rules uh, that had a kind of civilizational dimension to it. I mean, Russia, Russian discourse on the international politics is, has been really weird couple of years. You have a very sober and uh, kind of serious-minded uh, academic interpreters, journalistic interpreters, even more so, uh, talking about a kind of explosion in the relationship that, you know, frankly, I don't think is ever been particularly likely uh, in, in between the two. But they work themselves into into this kind of lather because of Russia's isolation, uh, because uh, what I think of as quite serious mistakes on the part of, uh, of Putin, who let a disagreement over Ukraine turn into a uh, a fundamental uh, confrontation in Europe between Russia and NATO, so that the the, the government in Europe that he has had the best relations with over, you know, many, many years, that is Germany, uh, has now become one of the leaders of the anti-Russian uh, movement, uh, you know, convinced supporters of sanctions against Russia and so forth, uh, backers of uh, troop deployments in Eastern Europe to show the Russians that they have to stop uh, pushing on small neighbors. Uh, this is has created a kind of uh, 
apocalyptic atmosphere in which people uh, think of, uh, of Russia as sort of fundamentally at odds uh, with the West across the board. And it has given license, I think, people who study these this more closely than I do, in particular, it kind of gave a license to um, uh, hysterical Russian propaganda efforts, probably to the intelligence agencies that undertook the hacking of the DNC. Uh, there's now an atmosphere of uh, relations with policy toward uh, toward the West, which anything goes, you know. Uh, supporting uh, political candidates of uh, uh, populist parties in uh, in Western Europe. Uh, the money flows. Uh, the hysterical propaganda is out there. The idea, and in here there's a kind of con convergence between Putin's rhetoric uh, and Trump's rhetoric, which is that you know the global system is rigged. Uh, elites. Uh, benefit and everybody else gets screwed. So Putin, in this telling of the of the uh, you know uh, world events, uh, becomes the the global populist like Trump, protesting the powers that be and their self dealing. Uh, Putin hates the EU. Uh, Trump's ideologists like Steve Bannon seem to regard the EU as especially odious uh, institution which is transnational in a way that they especially hate. Uh, so you had a, through this period of confrontation with the West a kind of embrace by Putin of very uh, populist rhetoric, of anti-elite rhetoric, of challenging the established order uh, uh, in a way that brought him close to people who were uh, ho in the West hostile to existing policy. He didn't like the uh, Obama administration. He didn't want Hillary Clinton. He thought that somehow you could find a way out of this. Now, what are they... Th this is all a great rhetoric for Putin. He probably thought, by the way, that Hillary Clinton was going to win. But he wanted to use that result as, a, as proof that the system is rigged. Uh, once Trump won, what could Putin expect to get out of it? Well, lots, actually. Uh, he wanted to get sanctions removed. Uh, he wanted to get a kind of pullback of support from the U.S. of uh, cooperation in Europe. Uh, he wanted to get a uh, kind of recess of efforts to enlarge NATO. He wanted to get a recognition of uh, Russia's sphere of influence on its periphery. Uh, he wanted to get an acceptance of Russia as a big player in the Middle East. All of these are uh, traditional uh, Russian objectives, but given this they were given this extra bit of nationalist uh, hysteria and energy uh, by the way the, the um, confrontation in Ukraine had developed. Uh, this has been for 
for Russia, a period almost of kind of recasting the legitimacy of the regime. You know, there's a term in Russia, uh, the Crimean Consensus. What that means is that Russia found a new nationalist confidence, a sense of its legitimacy after the seizure of Crimea, based on not just on taking this little bit of territory, because actually what's a tiny bit of territory like that, based especially on being able to assert itself against the West, defy the West, bear the brunt of Western sanctions, and though isolated, stand for something different in the world. That's the way Putin has tried to cast himself as the lonely hero against um, uh, you know, Western liberalism, which he portrays as decadent, corrupt, and so So speaking of rhetoric, another narrative that certainly pervaded the campaign period, in addition to the World War III thing, was, you know, Trump doesn't know anything about the world. How can you possibly let someone like this get his hand, you know, his finger on the nuclear button? Yeah. Now, I, I think, you know, there's that that's a discussion in of itself. But now that he's in office, you know, he has Mattis and Tillerson. It seems like deriving a, a big part of the strategy for the administration. What moves are you seeing these two guys doing in relation to Russia? Is it more aggressive than the than uh, the Obama administration? Is it a completely different strategy, or is it a continuation? I don't think I'm alone in saying that uh, it's utterly unclear what the Trump administration's policy toward Russia would be, because they they've had so many different versions of what it is that they're up to. You can hear the their ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, uh, talking about preserving sanctions and requiring the rollback of the Crimean annexation. Uh, you can hear General Mattis reaffirming American commitment to NATO uh, in contradiction to Trump's claim that NATO was obsolete. Uh, you have... Uh, Secretary Tillerson talking pretty tough in his Senate confirmation hearings. Uh, what it is that Trump wants, I think, is and intends to do is very unclear, and it's especially unclear now because the effort has engendered so much controversy that it's not clear this is a political winner for him. Uh, nor is it clear that the Russians are confident that he can deliver. You know, other governments always are happy when uh, the President of the United States embraces their perspective and seems to suggest that uh, a lot of their positions can be embraced uh, in American policy. But no government likes to discover that when the President says that, everybody else rises up and or including his own advisors, and uh, raise doubts about whether uh, the president can deliver. Right now, the Russians are having not so much buyer's remorse about Trump, but they're having a real doubt as to whether this is a guy who actually can manage the, pol the policy process in a way that does them any good. You know, has, has anti-Russian sentiment in the United States increased? since uh, Trump became president were decreased. Well, there are some signs that in you know, public opinion there's a little more 
a favorable view of Putin among you know, conservative Republicans. Other than that, you've had a deterioration of relations, even a demonization of, uh, of Putin. People are inclined to believe the absolute worst about, the, about Russian manipulations uh, in, uh, in American politics. You have uh, calls for a massive congressional investigation of Russian uh, policy and corrupt ties between the president and uh, and Russian intelligence. Uh, this isn't good for the Russians. They they don't like this. They uh, they fear this is a sign that um, the entire all the hopes that they uh, pinned on Trump are going to be disappointed. Given that we don't know much about exactly what Trump's intent is with Russia uh, and that there's a lot of disagreement within his cabinet about what to do um, and that there's a lot of anti-U.S. sentiment towards Russia, it seems that to some extent Trump's hands are fairly tied. But even if they weren't, what could Trump try to get out of the relationship with Russia? Um, assuming that he's not just going to hand Russia whatever it wants um, the United States has some cards, including sanctions um, or some chips. Is there anything that Russia can give the United States under the Trump administration that would be positive? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, the core of this is, of course, Ukraine. And I, I think there's, under other circumstances, there could be more hope for some rethinking on the part of the Russians about the entire enterprise uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I don't mean here that they would think, oh, we can give up Crimea. Because as I said, that's a big achievement, and Putin thinks of it as you know, a defining part uh, of his legacy. But the whole adventure in eastern Ukraine has really been a loser. And uh, Putin, who has, you know, not seen really much economic growth uh, in the past several years, uh, could easily make a decision that getting out from under sanctions would be worth a little backtracking uh, in the East. This is something that he is not going to want to have look like an outright defeat. He can't eat pro just because, uh, you know, he wants to get out from under sanctions. Uh, he's a politician like everybody else, and he's running for re-election. But could you find a way to make Trump's uh, respect shows of you know, good feeling and cooperation toward Putin a kind of cover for a rethinking of uh, Russian policy? I would say if I were advising Trump, I, I had things not spun so out of control, uh, that would be something worth uh, pursuing. Uh, and it can only work if Putin believes that he's not going to get a lifting of sanctions for free. Probably now he's resigned to that thought. Uh, unless there are big government, big changes of government in, in Europe, the sanctions will probably stay. And that's good for making Putin believe that he's got to give ground, that he's got to essentially get out of, of eastern Ukraine, right off that whole adventure, 
uh, and uh, and let the let the Ukrainian government resume uh, its uh, administration of those territories. Uh, are there other issues? Yeah, uh, Putin for a time after the start New Start Treaty. Uh, negotiated with Obama in 2010, said he wasn't interested in any more arms control. But that was before uh, the uh, Russian defense budget sort of hit hard times. Uh, and I think these days there's probably more interest on the part even of the Russian military, which has not been too interested in, uh, in arms control, and actually um, resuming that dialogue. And it's almost necessary because the Russians are in violation of a number of other treaties. You've got to put the dialogue back together in a way that allows everybody to put their grievances on the table. The Russians uh, have their own grievances. And uh, it may not be possible to resume, to produce any kind of new agreement. Uh, but you can get that sort of stabilizing effect from the resumption of some of these, uh, from the resumption of some of these issues, I think it'll be harder for Trump to do what he said uh, is his big goal, which is to develop an alliance against terrorism. It's not worthless to to try to talk about that and find some practical ways of of turning it into reality. I think it's it's merely you know not so likely, right? Uh, right now. To make it more likely, um, the U.S. has got to do a lot of work in, in strengthening, reviving its own relationships in the Middle East and showing that its alliances count for something. But if it can regain uh, some confidence, uh, the confidence of its allies in the, in, in, the, in the Middle East, then there's more of a basis for uh, talking to the Russians about some kind of cooperation there too. So you've got uh, the basis for um, some discussion. A lot of it will be uh, tense and unproductive, but some basis for sorting out the interests of both sides. I don't think you can make very much progress on any of these uh, fronts unless uh, you can kind of lance the boil of the Ukraine problem. There, you've got to convince Putin that you know, what, what he's been doing for the past couple of years in eastern Ukraine is just um, is beyond the pale. He's got to walk it back somehow. It just doesn't have to be utterly humiliating for him, but he can't keep doing what he's doing. If Putin, who has his you know, core pragmatism, is prepared to take another look at that whole issue, you know, I don't I don't think you necessarily get a new reset, but you could end up with a new, uh, a new phase of uh, transactional relations that seem productive to both sides. Oh, holy smokes, Stephen! I have learned so much today, and this is even after you know this is our fourth episode on this. Uh-huh. We've done a ton of Good. research coming in and there's, there's so much I didn't even know. So, Good. um, so on, you know, on behalf of myself and all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. Uh, a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs> you would absolutely love to.
anytime you guys want to pour over another 25 years of history and reconstruct it all, I'm there. Awesome. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Uh, expect to hear from us, definitely. <laughs> L- listeners, remember on our show notes, you can find more more work by Stephen Sestanovich if you want to dig in a little bit more, see what... Um, what he's written about recently, we will put links up to all of that. And otherwise, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. This has been one info, information jam-packed episode. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.